What's up, everybody? Welcome to Between You and Me and Jose, the Slims Presents podcast. Uh, thank you for tuning in tonight. I'm your host, Chris. Uh, my special guest here tonight, it's just going to be me and this man, Ian Port, music editor for San Francisco Weekly. Um, how long have you been writing for SF Weekly? Uh, I've been writing for almost about four and a half years. I've been on staff for nearly four years now. Yeah. And... Um, you can follow him on Twitter at at iPort or um, also for the All Shook Down blog, which is at SF All Shook Down. So definitely go out there and follow Ian. Um, Ian has been writing about the San Francisco music scene uh, for SF Weekly uh, in a way that a lot of music journalists, I think, haven't really been tackling um, as much in recent years with with the changing... Uh, landscape of print media specifically um, you know I, I I see a lot of parroting back of press releases and stuff like that so it's refreshing to see someone that actually goes out and researches stories and you know puts feet to the pavement and goes and talks to people and and researches and develops a story and covers a side of the music industry that you know is is not really being being addressed nearly as much as the days when you know there was Rolling Stone was like the primary music cultural source you know so I I definitely recommend everybody check out Ian's content on SF Weekly um, every Wednesday there's a new issue and uh, do you have something in pretty much every week? Yeah, usually there's a, a there's at least one piece by me in the paper every week, and um, there's usually something by me every day on the All Shook Down blog as well. Yeah, and you recently put out a a cover story uh, in the SF Weekly that got a fair amount of attention, and I think is an important issue for people to start talking about uh, in the Bay Area. Which uh, the article is called Exit Music, and uh, there's like two different subtitles, but <laughs> basically it's, is the San Francisco music scene doomed or, you know, with all the bands and musicians leaving for other places, is there a way that the scene can continue to thrive here, which was the way the piece was framed. But I think what the piece was ultimately about was, you know, let's, let's all actually take a look at this, this industry in our city and how can it continue to sustain itself uh, the way things have changed in you know the last 10 or 20 years uh, a lot of the old avenues for artists don't exist anymore um, we certainly have a changing landscape in terms of uh, the demographics in San Francisco it's always been a transient city there's always been a lot of people that come and go stay here for a few years yeah. and then ultimately you know move on to LA, New York, or, you know, go back to their hometown or whatever they do. But with the, with the new tech boom, um, separate from the dot com boom, uh, <laughs> though its end may, may end up being somewhat similar, but we'll see to be seen. But, you know, the reality is there, are, there's a lot more money in the city than there once was. 
it's getting a lot more expensive. Mm-hmm. Um, it's a lot harder for artists to be able to afford to live here. And on top of that, the demand for housing and places to put all these people with their money so that others can attain their money uh, is sort of forcing out the established businesses that, you know, created the mechanism through which art could thrive in San Francisco. And we're seeing that change a lot with, uh, you know, I always bring up the example of Slim's specifically where we had uh, a neighbor who moved in, well, several neighbors, but we'll, you know, we'll simplify the story, but uh, <laughs> that basically spent a million dollars on their condo and, and didn't feel like they should have to hear people out drinking on the streets and having a good time and have to hear music and whatnot. And so she called noise complaint after noise complaint. And eventually uh, it resulted in us have, losing our alcohol permit for 10 days or something like that. And I know you yeah. actually covered this story in yeah. the weekly. And uh, what ultimately we were able to survive that because we have other ways of making money. We run the music hall as well. We do all ages shows here so we can have all ages shows and at least keep some money coming in. But a lot of businesses don't have that option 10 days without being able to make any money and they have to go out of business. Mm -hmm. So what was the, uh, what was the first inkling that you, that you noticed that this type of process was beginning? Did you, had you seen it before this, uh, thing happened with Slim's? The Slims thing, I definitely kind of caught my attention, and that was actually pretty on, pretty early on in my kind of tenure at the Weekly. I was coming back from South by Southwest for the first time, my first time at South by Southwest, and I was sitting in the airport in Austin, and I had seen some someone reference something online that was like, "Slims is closed, what the heck?" And so I immediately got on the phone and I called Don, who um, right. sort of runs Slims in Great American Music Hall, and she told me what was going on. And I couldn't believe it, and checked around and sure, I mean, I believed Don, but it was. It was a crazy story to me right. that there was a neighbor who sort of repeated noise complaints to the ABC, to the police department. Um, could, Often on nights that we weren't even open. Uh, yeah. Well, and I think it all stemmed from a condition that's really common to a lot of the liquor licenses in the clubs in San Francisco, which is that technically, technically speaking, no sound can escape the club at all right yeah. even if the door even when people are entering and exit the cl- exiting the club so like in effect you couldn't have your door if any sound leaked out of the door when someone walked out or walked in you'd be in violation of your terms and i mean i think there's yeah. a long history in san francisco of i know there's a long history of the um department of alcoholic beverage control and to some extent i think the sfpd um you know really putting the screws to clubs based on these kind of incredible strenuous conditions of their liquor licenses. And that's kind of a separate issue that I think was putting a lot of what was great about San Francisco uh, in danger maybe more like five or ten years ago and then has since kind of subsided and now we're facing a new set of issues which is what I wrote this current story about. But I mean I think as far as the first time I remember thinking that like man this city is really changing actually was when Annie's Social Club closed. Yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I never went to Annie's that often, but it was always just one of those places, like when I moved to San Francisco, I grew up in the Bay Area, I lived in San Diego for a while when I went to school and a couple years after, and I moved back here. And Annie's was one of those places that I just loved right when I moved here, and it yeah. was cheap, and it was always lively, and like, 
you know there were great bands and there was a great karaoke room as everyone remembers yeah and it was cheap and fun and you met weird people there and it was exactly the sort of place that you know you moved to san francisco to go to yeah and um apparently not enough people moved here to go to places like that <laughs> because i think it's now oh i drove by it the other day it's called the key ultra lounge yeah well actually that place is now defunct as well so oh it is yeah it was key ultra lounge for yeah. a while um <laughs> Apparently they didn't they didn't uh, do too well with that business venture. Yeah. <laughs> uh, I only know this because uh, our operations manager here, Dennis, he uh, he has a few ATMs around town. Oh, uh, one at uh, uh, Hotel Utah, mm-hmm. and the other one was at Annie's. Annie's, yeah. And you know, then it sort of fell over to Key Ultra Lounge, and then he recently had to go and pick up his ATM because they're <laughs> out of business. So. Uh, I never actually attended Key Ultra Lounge, for the record. <laughs> Nothing against them. I'm sure they're fine, upstanding yeah. business people. It was just, you know, there were 354 Ultra Lounges in Soma, and the right. 355, <laughs> just, there was no room for it. Sorry. <clears throat> but, and then it was like, I remember watching, like, Chemo's closed. Yeah. And I mean, you know, I remember talking to people at the time who were like, oh, did Chemo's really matter? Did Chemo-? But everyone was, you know, Chemo's was always one of those places that, like, a local band could easily get a show, could play their first yeah. show at Chemo's. I saw some great bands from out of town play a show at Chemo's, like, the night after they played a big sold-out show at, you know, a big sold-out show. A sold-out show at, like, the Hemlock or maybe even Bottom of the Hill or something. They would right. play another night at Chemo's. And it was a useful spot in kind of, you know, the ecosystem of clubs. And that went under. And I think yeah. now it's another $12 cocktail bar on Polk Street. Yeah. Um, and so sort of like this momentum started to build. And then, of course, I mean, the major, I think, event that kind of catalyzed everyone's thinking about this was when Twitter moved into mid-market yeah. in 2012. Yeah. And that was really like, okay, this is... The city is becoming a very different place now. So let's let's explain this a little bit because there might be people listening. There might be millions of people listening. Millions. Millions that don't live in San Francisco and so they don't sort of understand the dynamic of what something like, you know, Twitter moving in does to an area. Because lo- the area that, that Twitter has moved into, um, it's an area that what... It, there wasn't a whole lot of stuff there. Um, so it was an area where people could kind of afford to do things. Um, and it was a place that hadn't quite been gentrified yet, hadn't been turned into $12 cocktail bars and whatnot. Yeah. Um, and there's a lot of established businesses, long time, um, oftentimes uh, immigrant businesses, where the the business owners opened up their business in 1975 with some guy, you know, who from the old country who happened <laughs> to be here and, yeah. you know, the, it was a handshake deal. And now, uh, now the landlord hears that the person right next door just sold their space for however many million dollars. So I'm going to get this person out so I can, you know, make that money and they don't have a lease. So I really have no obligation to do this legally. Uh, how, how does something like that begin the process of changing the face of the entire city? Well, I think, <clears throat> I mean, mid market was um, is a part of the city that uh, admit, that mayoral administrations in San Francisco had been really wanting to change for a long time. <clears throat> I think it was a priority 
you know, going back to the days of Willie Brown and even before then, mid-market was always seen as sort of a blight in the middle of this city. Like you would walk down Market Street and you would get past Union Square and then all of a sudden it kind of devolved or so-called devolved into, you know, what I think actually was, I, it wasn't all great. There was a fair bit of crime and there were, you yeah, know, whatever, yeah. but there were like people playing chess on the street. There were liquor stores. There were people hanging out on the street. There were... um you know, kind of down market eateries like donut stores and pizza stores and like all night sandwich shops and yeah. Chinese eateries. And like, you know, I mean, it was kind of, it wasn't, it was a lively kind of sometimes rough place. And a lot of times it was, there were just empty spaces. Like I remember yeah. at 10th and Market, <clears throat> which is right across from the building that Twitter occupies now, that was a hole in the ground for yeah. Oh, yeah. years. Yeah. And I think that a company had planned to build something there. And then right after the the economy went down the toilet in 2008, they, I think they, I don't know what happened if they backed out of that deal or if they, you know, put it on hold for whatever. But that there was just a hole in the ground for many many, many years. years. Yeah. So, you know, Mayor Ed Lee in San Francisco got sort of heard that Twitter, which was then a fairly small company, wanted to leave San Francisco because it felt that the taxes were too high. And so he came up with a tax break, and I couldn't give you the exact details on yeah. it, but basically Twitter got a pretty hefty tax break to stay in the city, and Lee crafted a deal where they moved, they ended up moving into this old, I believe it was a furniture warehouse building on Market Street between 9th and 10th, beautiful old kind of art deco building. Yeah. And um, shortly thereafter, I mean, this by this point Twitter became a big thing, shortly thereafter, like, you know, they had their IPO. Right. Um, and so suddenly there were all these like kind of millionaires on paper and even non-millionaires on paper who were making pretty good like six-figure or yeah more salaries who were working every day in this part of market this part of San Francisco that had been real blighted for a long time yeah and it's not to say that like you know the the way it was before was like it should have stayed that way forever yeah, yeah. I think everybody can agree that like the way market was at that point in time was not necessarily desirable you know you you didn't really feel safe going to a show at the warfield per se if you sure. had to like park a few blocks away and i don't know that that's changed all that much but you know it's it's not to say that things were perfect back then and they should have stayed that way it's just that um, we really have to be conscious of the fact that these changes have more of an effect than just uh oh well before there was crime and now there's not as much crime and now there's yeah. storefronts opening and blotty blotty that's all great but at the expense of who and what what obligation do we have to have you know a, a more inclusive economy that is sustainable and offers opportunities rather than coming in and exploiting the fact that these people didn't have much to begin with yeah so they were easily taken advantage of well, and I think landlords use the opportunity of Twitter moving in to definitely try to get more out of their tenants. And I mean, we're talking even like the existing kind of sandwich shops and donut shops or whatever that were all around there. Suddenly their landlords were jacking up the rent because they're like, oh, well, there are all these Twitter people around now. And well, like maybe those people didn't go to donut shops and didn't go to sandwich shops because right. they had their nice Twitter cafe in the office. Yeah. Because there were no Edison bulbs in the donut <laughs> right. shop. Right. Yeah. But I think the other thing too is that, um, you know, whether or not these places are necessarily good. I mean, we, 
it's hard to say whether these places are good or bad. But one thing that does happen when you have a space like mid-market that's sort of blighted or neglected in a city is that it tends to be a place the artists come in and remake it. You know, those empty storefronts and those empty warehouses and apartment buildings are spaces where artists can open, you know, clubs or galleries or, you know, whatever underground kind of spaces or live for cheap and do work that they wouldn't otherwise necessarily be able to do. That's definitely true. And, um, I think a lot of people, the irony is a lot of people move to San Francisco because of the, the culture that it's known for. And people have this idea of what San Francisco represents in their mind and all the history. And I'd say the, the vast majority of people, maybe, maybe pre current tech boom, I would say the, the majority of people move to San Francisco to find themselves. They didn't move here for a job or a career or anything like that. They moved here because they felt like they could experience something here that would resonate with them, a place that they could feel comfortable exploring themselves and and finding out who they were. I think that was like the main drive for San Francisco, you know, I would say at least after the 60s, you know. Yeah, I mean, yeah, I think people... You had a sense when you moved to San Francisco that the city could affect you or change you or open your mind to new things in a way that very, very few other places could. That sort of anything was possible in some sense here. Um, and now, you know, it's a very different place now. And it is yeah. there's that irony that a lot of people moving in here, I think want the culture. They move here because of the culture. And certainly a lot of the employees of the major tech firms that are located on down on the peninsula in Silicon Valley, they want to live in San Francisco and be bused down there because they see San Francisco as being a more vibrant, lively place than right. those suburbs. And the irony is that I feel like San Francisco is becoming more and more like downtown Palo Alto every right. day. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's, it's a cycle. So, I mean, it's hard in this discussion, like to uh, come across in a way that doesn't seem like you're, necessarily attacking any one category of person or placing blame on this kind of person because you know I don't necessarily lay this on individual people I think this is this is a cycle this is a system that is triggered and grows and has like you know a pretty set in stone outcome you know once the process starts of you have an area that's been blighted the, the process begins, well, I guess you could say it begins with the blighting of the neighborhood, and then the artists that take advantage of the fact that it's uh, cheap to live there and not a lot of people are going to really mess with what they're doing there, and then the interest and hype that comes from an area where there are a lot of artists doing great art and the people wanting to be involved in that, and then comes the economic exploitation of this uh, scene, which then, you know, eventually prices out the people that created the scene in the first place and snowballs into this suburb, essentially. Yeah, it becomes something else. And you see that happen all over. And I think one of the one of the kind of the backstories of what's happening in San Francisco right now is that San Francisco is kind of coming in its coming into its own economically in a way that it didn't before I, I think San Francisco, um, at least until the mid '90s, 
was always kind of a little bit of a backwater. Like it was a an important place and it was a lovely place and people lived here and there were, you know, there were some corporate headquarters here, but San Francisco never was an industry town in the way that, um, you know, Los yeah. Angeles was a media and entertainment town and New York was a finance, media, um, fashion, uh, many industry town. Right. And now San Francisco is kind of becoming the tech industry town. Yeah. And so there's just so much more money to go around and the money all that want, wants to go somewhere cool. And the place that's cool is where the artists are or were. Mm -hmm. And so you have these great transformations in this neighborhood, in these various neighborhoods, yeah. So. Well, I mean, it's, it's uh, I mean, the unfortunate reality is that you can either spend, you know, $3,000 a month on a house in Palo Alto, or you can spend $3,000 a month on, you know, a studio apartment in San Francisco. Oh, yeah. And, you know, so... It's not like it's, you know, you can say, oh, well, you know, they should live where they work. But at the same time, it's like, you know, it's not exactly a great situation there either in terms of, of price. Totally. Because well, they, people down there know that they can get money out of these people. Right. And they, I mean, that was what happened in the last tech boom too, is all the prices and the real estate prices on the peninsula went crazy. And I mean, I, I don't blame anyone for wanting to live in San Francisco. I think it's the most rational thing a person could possibly want to do. <laughs> I mean, this is a great place. And I mean, I, I think the demand to live here in an economic sense is basically limitless. But I, I want to just bring up that I, I agree with you. I don't think it's like anyone's fault. It's not an, any individual or even necessarily any company's fault. This is a sort of byproduct of the way that our, you know, national and global economic system works. Yeah. And of the fact that... You know, one thing that troubles me about this is that there are so few good urban places in this country. Like, there are so few dense, um, you know, transit-driven, walkable cities, actually, in this country, if you really think about it. And there are especially few on the West Coast. And so, naturally, people, I think, are gravitating to want to live in those places because they've come to realize the advantage of them. And San Francisco is probably, I mean, is easily the best one on the West Coast and maybe even one of the best in the world. So, of course, people want to live here, and that's a completely reasonable thing. The sad yeah. part is that there isn't more of it for people to live in. That's true. <laughs> uh, but at the same time, I, I, as much as it isn't any one person's fault or any one group of people's fault, it's not to say that there, there is no fault. You know, I think it's important that we actually look and address these issues and think about them as a culture and say, well, all right, we are, we are seeing this happen very plainly in front of us. And it's not something that's necessarily desirable. You know, nobody wants the culture of a city to die, I would think, you know. But it is, we, I think one of the things that, that your articles, and I'm not just referring to the exit music article, because I think there's a narrative that sort of goes through a lot of the pieces that you've done over the years, addressing the fact that, um, that we are becoming aware of the patterns that are happening around us and we're seeing the effect of our actions and, you know, the byproduct of, uh, bringing in industry that, which is great for the city, a, hu a higher tax base, stuff like that is the fact that you, you price out certain people that were actually of a benefit to the city and helped bring those people in the first place. And, even though it's not one specific group's fault, per se, it is 
everybody's problem and it's something that we should deal with and we should talk about and confront and try to use some of the technology that we have to figure out how to be able to create a landscape that uh, nurtures creativity, nurtures entrepreneurship, nurtures uh, people that don't have as much economic privilege as as the next person, you know? It's important that we think about and identify and talk about these things and and take the opportunity that we have to figure out how we can restructure the way we're doing things to make sure that that those values are reflected. And I, being that it's such a, tr a changing time in, I'd say, for the whole world, I mean, as much as San Francisco is changing, the whole world is changing. The way the way our parents lived is almost so alien to the way we live today. <laughs> it's it's crazy. And when you stop to think about how, even in our lifetimes, how many things that were institutions for previous generations are just not even a memory in someone's head at this point. Yeah. <laughs> so, but, you know, that is also an opportunity. Print media, you know, which was one of the dominant uh, forms of media throughout the 20th century is dying. You know, you've, you've seen this firsthand at SF Weekly. Um, you guys were uh, recently purchased. Is that right? Yeah, it was about a year ago. We were purchased. We were sold from our one parent company to a new company. And that parent, the new parent company also owns, um, the Bay Guardian. And what is it? The, is it the Chronicle or the is examiner. it the Examiner? Yeah. Okay. And so it's, it, everything is really being consolidated. And in a lot of ways, the system, the way it was before has sort of turned into this cycle of you know it's a business you know it the point is to sell advertisement the point is not to necessarily uh focus as much on culture and cultivating culture and investigative reporting and things like these it's basically a mechanism you know yeah well i think the thing with with print media is that i mean until the internet was invented and and became dominant Print media basically, um, you know, had a monopoly on the distribution of written words in a given market, and the kind of benefits that we all took, um, the things that we all enjoyed about that. You know, when, when I was in college, even like ten years ago, you know, the SF Weekly and the Big Guardian both were like 120 pages a week. Yeah, and I'm looking at an edition now that's like. This is 60 pages a week, and this is pretty good. I mean, you know, a year, yeah. a year or so b ago, before we were sold to the new company, we had been down to the low 40s sometimes, sometimes even 40, and the Big Guardian had been down into the mid 30s even before they were bought. Um, and are we talking just content? Or are we including no? Ads that's a total and, page count. Okay, but the amount of content in any newspaper is proportional to the amount of ads sold. So. The number of ads pages sold depends on how much space you get. Um, so, I mean, I think, 
you know, in the old days, media had basically a monopoly. And so it could afford to do all these things. It could afford to run, you know, 120 page issues and run like six or seven music stories a week in an alt weekly and then four album reviews and then four more local album reviews and then a list of show recommendations because, you know, there was no place else to go and there was all this money coming in and it was a very good way to make money. I mean, if you owned a printing press, if you owned the means of production back in the day as a daily newspaper or a weekly newspaper, you were basically printing money. It was a great business to be in. It was a fantastic business. And no one even really realized how fantastic it was until the internet came along. And suddenly, you know, what had been a solid like 20% profit margin business went down to 10%, you know? <laughs> and, and these publicly owned newspaper companies the owners of them balked and said, you're only making a 10% profit. You were making a 20% profit. This right. is crazy. We have to cut staff and, you know, stop I'm doing all these things rich, that we were doing. But... Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and I mean, I can tell you right now that like since SF Weekly was purchased by a new locally owned company and yes, was consolidated at least financially with these other papers, although we remain editorially independent yeah. since then, We've been doing much better financially. Since I started, was hired at the Weekly until we were sold, we were constantly worried about the, the future of the paper. Right. We were constantly coming into the office wondering, are we going to have a paper today? Like, what's going to happen? And now we don't worry about it because we're doing okay now. We're on solid financial footing. We're not making reams and reams of cash, but right. we, we are doing totally fine. We're sustainable. Um, so is print media dying? I mean, I think print media has found that it is no longer the dominant form of media in the world, as right. almost every other form of media has found uh, in the wake of the rise of the internet. But I don't think print media is ever going to go away. And I think there's always going to be an attraction and um, uh, a financial base to print media that the internet, that will be different from the internet or television or radio. Um, and so, yeah, I mean, it's been a weird, <laughs> it's been a strange ride. Like, I... I started working in newspapers right at the very, very darkest point, like around 2005, 2006, when everyone was saying that the industry was totally going to go away altogether. And, you know, a lot of the papers did go away in Seattle and Philadelphia and Colorado. Um, and, you know, some, for a long time, we were sort of having a Chronicle death watch where we were waiting to see if the Chronicle was going to make it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, they've survived and they continue to survive. So... Hopefully they continue to survive. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I mean, you guys also you guys also are on the internet. So is it is the primary uh, revenue source still the print media, or is uh, the digital side actually making up a fair percentage of that? I mean, I think the digital side, at least for SF Weekly, I don't, I don't, I can't speak for all the papers, but for SF Weekly, I think it makes up a pretty reasonable side. Um, I do think that print maybe still pays most of the bills. Um, but certainly you've seen, you know, nationally at least, uh, newspapers that have done very well, uh, building a digital side have actually come to real, make enough money to support that and to replace a lot of the print revenue that's gone away. So we can kind of think of this as like an, an al analog to your article on the music scene. Yeah. I think about the similarities a lot. Yeah. It's. I mean, definitely it's true. A lot of businesses are closing. Um, Cafe du Nord, a great uh, music venue, just recently closed down. Um, 
uh, several years ago, the pound, a great place for, for metal. Um, you know, even on this street here, 11th street where Slim's is located at, at one point in time, um, there was, you know, a club on every corner, mm -hmm. very lively neighborhood. And for a while that declined, uh, Caliente closed down, Paradise Lounge closed or closed and then never reopened. Yeah. Um, you know, and there was a lot of empty spaces and people did suffer. And now we're kind of seeing that the neighborhood is starting to come back. Um, a lot of businesses are, are now opening. We have Beatbox that opened across the street, uh, Bergerac and, um, Audio Discotheque. Yeah. Um, DNA Lounge has kind of, you know, restructured things a little bit and they're branching out a little bit more. Um, butter is still doing great. Um, we have a classy joint next door, Bar Agricole. Oh, yeah. So, and you have the street food parks, um, just a block away. So the neighborhood is kind of coming back to life. So the, the fear, uh, the doom and gloom of thinking that, holy shit, like, it's all just gonna go away and, you know, there's gonna be a, a void. Um, it's not necessarily true. That's not to say that what ends up coming in and, and taking the place and being the phoenix that rises from those ashes is going to live up to what was there before. But I don't think you can really, like, uh, there's nothing you can do about that, really, unless you're going out there and being the entrepreneur yourself and creating what you want in that space. But I guess what what is interesting is that everything sort of comes to an end and well not a full end not a full stop but everything flounders and some things die off the stronger things survive and a rebirth process happens and do you see that that is what is happening in the san francisco music scene even though we do have a lot of musicians notable musicians let's say are fleeing for L.A. or Portland or Seattle or places like this, do you see that the music scene is going through a rebirth rather than a death? Yeah, I would say so. I mean, at least in terms of the clubs, um, especially in terms of the clubs, you know, the clubs are not, I think, are, are maybe less in danger than the situation has been painted at like, uh, you know, some clubs I think are going to do worse in the co the economy of San Francisco. Right. And those may happen to be some clubs that are sort of near and dear to my heart, but places like chemos and, you know, any social club yeah. and those kinds of places, sort of like lower rent, grimier, dirtier places that don't probably make a lot of money. And, you know, that maybe focus on kind of more fringe sorts of bands or artists yeah. or entertainment, you know, those are going to have a harder time. Are clubs that, you know, have function one sound systems and have big name DJs or are those going to do well? Yeah, those are doing great. <laughs> those yeah. are doing absolute gangbusters. Um, and because obviously there's a lot of young people in the city with money and, and they want to go spend it and they want to go to clubs. Um, you know, are those audiences different from what they used to be even in those same clubs? I mean, I've heard from, from a number of people that they are, that the kind of, that, yeah, that people 
aren't as necessarily about the music as much as going out or whatever, or just being in a spot. But, you know, who's to say whether that's really the case? Yeah. Um, but so I think the clubs are going to do fine. The thing that concerns me is, you know, what happens when San Francisco isn't a place that musicians want to come to anymore? That, that when, this isn't a place where you can actually make art and do stuff. Right. You know, they, there will always be clubs in San Francisco and artists will always want to play here because there's history and there's great venues and I don't think that's going to change. What I'm worried about is whether San Francisco can continue to kind of create to spawn this stuff on its own or whether it'll just be a host for it. That's definitely true. I mean, I think the the elephant in the room that that sets San Francisco apart from a lot of other cities is that yeah, San Francisco is very small, um, but Oakland is right there. Yeah. So if you can't afford to live in San Francisco, you can possibly, you know, at least up until maybe <laughs> a, a year or two ago, yeah. you could probably afford to live in Oakland and still not change up your life too much, you know, and it would still be contributing to San Francisco culture and Bay Area culture as a whole. Uh, but a lot of pe- a lot of places don't have an Oakland right next door where where people can move to and continue to to thrive. And we are seeing one of the things that I took away from your exit music article in which you went and talked to a lot of club owners, a lot of promoters, a lot of artists, and got their take on things. I'd say ninety percent of the people talked about Oakland. More yeah. than talking about San Francisco, they talked about Oakland. Yeah. And as someone who lives in Oakland, I I found that very interesting because while Oakland is a very culturally uh, diverse and thriving community, there aren't a whole lot of opportunities for artists to sustain themselves in Oakland yet. You know, maybe that's to come. Maybe that's what's going to jumpstart the process all over again in the East Bay. But... For the most part, the bands that we talk to that we have here on the podcast, even if they live in Oakland, even if they love Oakland and prefer Oakland, they got to come to San Francisco to make money. So it's, uh, I, I wonder what it would be like if there was no Oakland for artists to <laughs> fall back on and if they just had to leave for, you know, LA, Portland, Seattle, somewhere in the Midwest, you know, it's, I think we'd probably be in a lot worse place than we, we are would. Right now. Yeah, we would. And I mean, I think as expensive as Oakland is getting, I mean, Oakland is so much bigger, so much yeah. more spread out. There's a lot of room to grow in Oakland. I mean, whether, I mean, and whether that growth means that a lot of the, you know, people who've lived in Oakland for a very long time and have roots there are going to no longer be able to afford to live there, just as those people have come to no longer live in San Francisco. You know, that may be the case, and that, I think, is a very sad reality. I remember interviewing Boots Riley from The Coup, yeah, and he told me that, like, he said something like, in 20 years, there are going to be no black people in Oakland, and there'll be a Tupac museum. <laughs> um, He's That's a deep guy, Boots Riley. Yeah. He's um, awesome as well. He may be right, but... Uh, but I think, yeah, if, and I've heard, I heard this from many people in my, you know, reporting that, you know, if Oakland wasn't there, it would be a sadder story for sure. It would be a much sadder story. So do you find yourself, um, having to focus more on the East Bay as a journalist than 
than previously. Well, it's funny because like you said, I mean, a lot of um, there are, it seems like there are more and more bands that live in Oakland and that maybe even record or rehearse in Oakland, but they all seem to have to come here still to play yeah. shows. I do find that there are a lot more shows in Oakland that I want to go to. Yeah, and for that, sure. You know, there are like things like Burger, um, Burgaloo, sorry, Burger Boogaloo, <laughs> which is a two day festival in a, in a park in Oakland that's like a bunch of kind of garage rock and like throwback retro rock. Yeah. Like uh, Milk and Cookies and Ronnie Spector are playing this year. And like that's something that, you know, I would definitely go to Oakland to see that. Um, and then there are lots of shows at places like Eli's or the Uptown yeah. or those venues that seem, you know, pretty cool and worth going to. Um, but, you know, we're sort of trying to figure out at the weekly, like how much Oakland we should cover right. being San Francisco weekly. Yeah. I mean, the name is San Francisco. So, <laughs> yeah. but um, and at I don't... the same time, I don't think you can really talk about, if you live here, you can't talk about San Francisco without talking about Oakland at the very least. Yeah. And, you know, so if you're talking about someplace like LA, that is a massive, massive, massive place with you know, you can talk about L.A. as a whole and not have to break it down into the different little neighborhoods. Uh, but essentially, the 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 fate of San Francisco is so intertwined with the fate of Oakland at this point that it's hard to to stay relevant with the culture of San Francisco without talking about Oakland. Yeah, definitely. I mean, do you find that, uh, are you, how do you feel about it? Like, are you optimistic about the future of Oakland and people moving over there and a kind of more vibrant scene coming up up there? Um, I definitely have mixed feelings about it because I, I'll go back a little bit. I, I lived in, I'm from LA originally. I moved up to the Bay Area in 1999 and I lived in Oakland. I went to college in Oakland. I spent about six years living in Oakland and um, eventually my my last two years in college our classes were more focused on San Francisco so I ended up moving over to San Francisco to finish up college and I met the woman that uh, would ultimately become my wife who was a lifelong San Franciscan so I spent some time in San Francisco and ultimately felt drawn back to the East Bay um, I felt like it was more authentic, more what I was accustomed to having grown up in L.A., uh, a lot more real people that had been born and raised there and cared about their community and actually talked to their neighbors and got involved in things. And one of the weirdest things when I had moved back to Oakland from San Francisco, I had spent about, you know, maybe four or five years in San Francisco, and the craziest thing was everyone was talking to me. Like all the neighbors were like <laughs> waving to me and striking up conversations and people on the street would just say stuff to me and, <laughs> you know, ask me about my dog and just all kind of random stuff that at first, once you spent so much time in San Francisco, it catches you off guard because you're yeah. like, you're used to just like walking with your head down. You know, you don't even know the person that's lived next to you for 10 years. Uh, but that's very different in Oakland. So, and that, that's one of the things that's appealing about it. And one of the, one of the unfortunate things that I've been seeing with Oakland sort of experiencing the, uh, or sort of 
mopping up the <laughs> the spills from San Francisco, the people that can't, you know, can't sustain themselves in the city and move to Oakland because it's the only way that they can have a decent life. Again, I don't blame these people. It's, you know, it's a, it's the it's just the way it is. It's just the cycle, you know. They got to live somewhere, you know. But I see more and more the culture or lack of culture spilling over from the what has happened in San Francisco into Oakland and starting to change the fabric of what was actually uh, felt right about Oakland because it's people that that aren't investing in in the community there and they aren't talking to their neighbors and thinking of themselves as part of this greater thing they're coming in and, and doing what you would do in San Francisco which is I want a coffee shop on the corner of my neighborhood so I can walk to it and get coffee in the morning I want to have a convenient life Again, I don't blame people for wanting this, but you're coming in and imposing yourself on some place that existed long before you were there with people that existed long before you were there and taking actions that might end up having serious impacts on their lives and their livelihood and their ability to continue staying there. So I see I see pros and cons to it. I mean, the the reason that I moved to Oakland is because it was what I could afford. You know, I could get a good apartment and not have to live in a box like I was in, living in San Francisco and not have to live all the way out by Lake Merced where my friends would never come and visit me. And every morning I walk out and there's just a wall of fog <laughs> and I would have yeah. to have two outfits, the one for leaving my house and then the one ultimately for wherever I ended up in San Francisco that had a completely different climate. <laughs> but you know, I see these things trickling over into San, into Oakland from San Francisco. And there's a lot of positive aspects to it, a lot of great businesses that have opened up because of this. There's a lot of great restaurants in Oakland now. Uh neighborhoods that I just 10 years ago walking through would have been terrifying. Um are actually nice neighborhoods now. Um you know, it's it's such a complex issue that it's it's hard to really really talk about without looking at the whole macro picture and understanding the subtle back and forth and how all these things are interrelated and connected and how certain actions affect other people and other communities. And it's great that there are places for artists in Oakland. A lot of uh and to be honest, a lot of the places, there wasn't anything happening there before, you know. Uh, there are always cases where, you know, people are being pushed out um, because landlords want to make more money and be able to rent to different uh, tenants. But at the same time, there was a lot of empty space, a lot of storefronts that hadn't had anything in them for years, like we were talking about before in the mid-market area. Yeah, A lot of Oakland was blighted. Downtown Oakland, you know, when I moved here, there was no reason to be in downtown Oakland. There was very little there. Most of it was shuttered. Uh, there were a few businesses here and there, but nothing that really made people want to go there and stay there. So I see both sides of it, you know. On the one hand, 
uh, it's positive for for the overall culture. And on the other hand, it's it's starting a cycle that's ultimately going to lead to the death of that culture. And being so close to San Francisco and seeing it up close, I think there's a benefit there that Oakland can learn from those mistakes. And I think Oakland is a place that people do feel more of a connection to living in Oakland than people feel in San Francisco because it's their city. They've, they were born there, they were raised there, or it's where it's the place that provided them their lives, their livelihoods. And they want to, they want to protect that. They don't want to see that go the way of San Francisco. So there's active involvement with people trying to steer it in a direction that is more in line with the values of Oakland. And that I really appreciate. That I think is what needs to happen in San Francisco. And that's why I'm very appreciative of articles like the one that you wrote that really force people to take a look at their actions and how they support the, the thing that they love, you know. How can they ensure that they are contributing to the ability to keep this culture going? Um, so definitely thank you for writing that article. <laughs> sure. I mean, I, I don't know. And I apologize. I, I talk a lot. So <laughs> that's just the way I am. That's all but good. I ramble. That's why I have a podcast. Um, but I think it's an important issue. And there are, you know, we've had a lot of bands on this podcast that, uh, are primarily in Oakland and they are some of these people that are the scouts of gentrification as, of course, as, yeah. as it's been put. And again, they, they don't see it as that. They don't see that they're doing something wrong. And I don't necessarily see that they're doing something wrong, but obviously the, the, the chain effect is a negative in the long run. So something's got to change. Well, unless that we can figure out a way to have it not have the same outcome as it's having in San Francisco and right. it's had in other places, yeah. So you've had, um, after the article was published, you had a, I guess, a panel discussion at the chapel yeah. um, about this issue, hoping, I imagine, to come up with some kind of dialogue and uh, perhaps have some solutions come out of it. Uh, was there anything that you took away from that as as what things we can do to start a, steering this in the right direction? Yeah. I mean, I think the larger I, – I, I think that the, the, the big issue in the background of all of this that leads to the kind of changes that we're talking about um, is really housing and economics in – California, in San Francisco, and in this country in general. Um, and those are big issues that have to do with tax policy, property tax policy, you know, economic and inequality, um, education policy, um, and, you know, the kind of state support for corporations. Um, but, you know, short of getting into all that, which I don't think we necessarily want to, um, which I think was ultimately where a lot of the bigger, the most important changes could lie. Um, I think any effort San Francisco can make to help artists live here or help artists work here or help, you know, in, in any way support artists doing stuff here um, to encourage them for that 
is a good thing. And one of, you know, there are a lot of efforts underway and there are a lot of things that could be done. One of the things is um, the city is trying to encourage more local businesses to hire musicians to play. And we're not talking like clubs necessarily, but yeah. cafes, restaurants, um, bars, smaller venues, places that don't necessarily have a stage, but could say have like um, a jazz combo come in or a pianist or like, you know, someone come in and play an acoustic guitar and sing some songs on a Saturday night. They would bring people in and they would give a musician or musicians money. Um, so the city has a new perf uh, permit that's supposed to allow that and make that easier. Um, and they've been pretty slow getting it off the ground because a lot of people didn't know about it or didn't understand why they should get it. And there's a pretty big effort underway right now, actually starting this week, to encourage businesses in places that might, to encourage certain businesses to get those. Like there's a nonprofit here in the city called You Love that actually is sending out teams of people to restaurants and cafes along Valencia Street this week telling them, Hey, this performance permit exists. You could hire musicians. And, you know, you love is offering things like they can even just contract with you love and you love will book the musician, bring in a sound system, you know, decide what to pay the musician, pay the musician. And all the business has to do is basically say when they want music and provide the money. Um, so I think that, you know, that's a small step. Obviously, that's not going to solve the whole issue that we're talking about here, but it's a, it's a good one. I think that would be really helpful. And, you know, the contrast, I think, with other cities, like, say, with Austin or, like, New Orleans. If you go to New Orleans, there really is live music everywhere downtown. I was shocked when I went to New Orleans, and I've only been there once. And it was a while ago before Katrina, so I can't speak to what it's like now. But, you know, there were musicians on every corner. Every restaurant had a musician, like, not just for dinner, but for brunch, you know, cafes and stuff. And that really kind of gave you a sense that, the city cared about that stuff. And you don't get that sense here in San Francisco, even though we do have a ton of live music. And I think that that would be helpful. Um, there are other groups working on like a community center or and combination kind of residence for musicians that would provide subsidized housing so that some musicians could live there and stay in the city and there would be a place for musicians to gather and rehearse and trade ideas and do things like that, um, which I think is a promising development. Um, what I would really like to see, though, is more support from the companies that are paying workers so much money to live in San Francisco right. for the music that they're, you know, inadvertently or not helping to displace. And I think there are some companies that are doing that. There's one called GitHub in Soma that actually built like kind of a performance space in its uh, first floor. It's like entry level. And they're hosting performances there. And right now they're not open to the public. I think they've only done one. But um, they're paying musicians pretty good rates to you know go put on a show there. And it's invite only. And it's for the company and for other people so far in the community. But something like that I think is really cool. And not only does it give musicians like money to perform in San Francisco, but it gets those employees who watch the show um, interested in local music, and maybe they'll go out and go to other shows and you know find out about other bands. Um, the other thing I really don't understand that why we have so few of is basically like corporate residencies. I mean, I feel like these companies, so many tech companies in this city could afford, say, like to spend 
$10,000 every six months and give like 2,500 or 5,000 or whatever to like an artist, have them play a couple shows for a company, like a company party or like a company happy hour, put them on the website, like have them, you know, do something for the company, its employees. And then also the company could give that artist some kind of publicity and support, you know, and you know, that amount of money would be insignificant for so many of these companies and it would be huge for the artists that are trying to live and work here. Yeah. So I think there's a lot of stuff that could be done. And, you know, I have more and more ideas than that even. <laughs> well, do you see uh, riffing off what you just described about uh, companies providing opportunities for artists, um, booking them for in-office shows and uh using native advertisements to sort of prop up and support art. What do you see as the, uh, well, do you think that that is a slippery slope in terms of like creating a system where it's the, the corporations essentially that are, you know, deciding who gets to, who gets exposure, who gets to, to live as an artist, et cetera, et cetera. And artists having to like, you know, go after this as their primary means of, um, of supporting themselves. Uh, you recently did a, a post about a lift video with, uh, some local rappers, A1, who is a, a great San Francisco based rapper. We've had him here at Slim's and say knowledge. And I can't remember who else. But they are freestyling in a lift car, yeah, and it's being videotaped, and probably is a promotional tool for sure, lift, absolutely, as well as for the artists. But at you know, number one, who gets the primary benefit out of something like that? Is it necessarily a fair trade for the artists? And what are what's the what are the possible outcomes for for creating an economy that is you know, based off of this sort of paradigm? Well, I think there's a big difference between, you know, having these kinds of small quarterly or, or you know, biannual residencies. And there's a big difference or, or a long way from that to kind of creating an economy that it's based, it's based on that. Um, I think it would have to be a lot of companies and a lot of money and a lot of bands doing that before we saw, like, people kind of trying to make themselves appeal to Google or Facebook or Twitter or whatever. Um, but that said, we already do exist in a music economy where bands sort of make themselves available and make themselves desirable to corporations to do various things, like whether it's, you know, Converse or Mountain Dew or Lady Gaga and Doritos. Yeah. Um, and that's part of the game now. And I don't like that at all, personally. I really dislike that. I, you know, grew up kind of idealizing things in the early 90s and like, you know, don't sell out. And I still kind of question the decision that artists make sometimes to make a living or barely make a living as a musician if it means basically shilling for a corporation versus not doing that and making whatever they actually want to make but that's for them to decide not me um, <laughs> um so i think it is a slippery slope um but at the same time it seems like the most direct way of kind of rectifying the situation where like you have companies drawing people that are displacing artists and then you know to kind of create some sort of support i mean maybe the companies could have a layer of uh you know independent 
uh, you know, I don't know, I'm not necessarily suggesting that companies would just give their money over to an independent panel that would then hire the musicians for them or something. But right. There may be ways to get around that. Um, as for the lift video, <laughs> I think that there are very that there are ways that artists can partner with corporations and brands to do things that are very beneficial to both the artist and the brand. And then I think that there are ways that are very hypocritical and you know negative for everyone involved. I recently wrote too about this um, Nick Waterhouse ad. Oh yeah, Lexus. Or it was a Lexus right? ad for Nick Nick Waterhouse. Yeah. yeah. And at first when I saw this ad, it was like, I thought it was really weird. Well, actually, no, the first time I saw the ad, I thought like, who are all these people in this Lexus kind of like getting down to this cool music? Yeah. And then, <laughs> and then like a few seconds into the ad, they showed Nick Waterhouse's name a couple times. And then they showed the ad, the car driving past like a, a, a wall of Nick Waterhouse posters yeah. and then everyone in the car ends up like partying at a Nick Waterhouse concert and it says Nick Waterhouse and like gives yeah. his new album and stuff it's basically a commercial for Nick Waterhouse it's totally more a commercial than it for is Nick for Waterhouse Lexus yeah and I thought Nick Waterhouse really came out on top of that one um, and I'm sure like you know Lexus probably felt that Lexus came out on top of that yeah. one but it was an example I thought of a way that a band and a corporation could work together in a way that was like okay for both of them and where like Nick wasn't really being too exploited right and he was basically getting ads on primetime TV I mean this ad aired during the Super Bowl so yeah he, he must have gotten a lot of attention out of that at least I hope so so I think there are ways to get around it even though like I'm not a huge fan of of the system although it is sort of the way that artists have to make money now what do you think about things like um, like the Red Bull Music Academy, where uh, if people don't know what that is, it Red Bull sponsors uh, lecture series by established artists. It tends to be more in the electronic uh, realm, but uh, you know, and they and they have classes for artists uh upcoming aspiring artists to come and learn from established artists and learn types of gear and stuff like that and hear these people speak but ultimately it's you know one might say it's an ad for red bull you know more so than and some a lot of people think that it's they're exploiting this scene for their own gain i mean do you see that yeah i mean it's hard to say. I don't know. I mean, they're definitely getting something out of it. But I feel like, especially with Red Bull Music Academy, they're really putting a lot. It seems like they're putting a lot into it. It seems like these artists are getting yeah. a chance to do something that they would otherwise not get a chance to do. Meeting people, learning things, getting to work on equipment that's, you know, new to them. It's an opportunity for them. Um, so I think it sort of has to be up to the artist to decide whether that's something that they're comfortable with. And I can respect people making either, going either way, really. You know, um, I haven't seen, you know, Red Bull is another one, like they really seem to do a lot. And then, you know, another example would be Converse, who's been here oh, in yeah. the city, um, who did a bunch of shows at Slim's, who paid for a bunch of bands to record at a local studio yeah. um, and gave them a lot of publicity, like put a local band called The She's on like billboards around oh, the city. Oh, yeah, yeah. Got them a lot of attention. Um, I, you know... I think it's hard to argue that the artists aren't getting a lot out of that. Yeah. And I, I mean, I definitely, I, I'm in the same boat as you. Like I, I 
you know, came of age in the 90s. And there was this very idealistic mindset. And in a lot of ways, a very, uh, the progression of the punk rock mindset. Yeah. Where it was very much about authenticity and staying true to yourself and not selling out and all this kind of stuff. Uh, but the reality is that, you know, that was propped up by the recording industry, you know, which doesn't have the power that it had at that point. Yep. And those people were coming out much better than even the artists were. You know, you hear um, on the recent documentary, The Tanning of America. I don't know if you saw that on VH1. No. Um, interesting. I definitely recommend it. it about how hip-hop culture has been integrated into American culture. Oh, yeah. And um, one of the examples was... Um, well, there, there are several apt examples here. Um, one of which is the hip hop artists realizing that the power that they had in being able to sell things, you know, mentioning gin and juice and a song. And then all of a sudden, uh, the sales of Seagram's gin skyrocket, <laughs> you know, so it starts this process where people start to realize that, you know, they, actually have power they're reaching a whole lot of people and they they can leverage that power and you know get some money out of these companies and you know still be you know i guess somewhat staying true to themselves you know i think snoop dogg's gin and juice uh song <laughs> was not done as a ploy to promote seagram's gin but you know i think later once people started realizing this stuff like past the Cavassier and like, you know, uh, P. Diddy coming out with his own uh, brand of vodka and things like yeah. this, like started really, really taking it down a road where, you know, it became, you know, shilling for corporations basically. Um, but, um, and I'm not even quite sure where I was originally going with this, but uh, it's an interesting concept that, that, and if you look at hip hop today in the state of, where hip hop music is, it's completely lost that authenticity that I think drew people to it in the first place. And a lot of, a lot of what you're hearing on the radio and what is being uh, signed by the few labels that are still actually, you know, doing business, uh, major labels that is, um, it's, it's pop music basically. And it becomes, you know, through this process of of realizing the economic power that you have and then asserting that economic power, you're essentially, you know, diluting what it was. <laughs> so, I don't know. I mean, coming out of this mindset where it's important for artists and art to stay authentic and not be sold out to corporate interests... But the truth is we're living we're living in a time where people don't want to contribute themselves to art. You know, we all still have the option of paying for music, and a lot of people don't. Simply because it's available for free, why should I have to pay for it? You know? And that's a that's a discussion that we I think we as a culture at this point have to have. If information is freely available, where is the value? 
you know is it in the song file is the song the value or is you know where at what point are you obligated to yeah you know to kick in something. support the person yeah there was something i read last week where they were talking um like a financial industry expert was talking about how streaming services like rdo and spotify yeah are eventually no longer going to be things that people pay for directly they're going to be like kind of perks thrown in with the purchase of like say a new a set of headphones or like right. a car or you know a magazine subscription or something you're just right, gonna, right. oh we'll throw in you know six months of rdo or two years of spotify or something like that which is just i mean already you're getting such a ridiculous bargain paying ten dollars a month for something like spotify right and then to just not even have to pay for it for music to just be completely yep all access to it or access to almost all of it don't pay anything it's yeah it's a very that is terrifying to me <laughs> yeah i i don't agree though necessarily that by embracing its sort of power to shell things that hip-hop has kind of lost its authenticity i think authenticity in hip-hop is a much more fluid and elusive concept than it was in like independent music or independent rock sorry in like the 80s and 90s and it means a whole different thing um i think Jay-Z is being Jay-Z when he's shilling Hublots and Maybachs. Um, I personally don't like that. Right, right. I, it's not an interesting subject matter for me. It's, it, I don't think it necessarily makes for the greatest art. Right, um, right. But I think, you know, authenticity is something that each kind of scene sets on its own or defines on its own. Um, and it's a pretty shaky concept anyway, but... I think that there, are, I, I guess I don't know that like corporate sponsorship or corporate ties totally spoil it for anyone, but they, you know, it, it's all in the mind of the artist and what they're doing and why they're doing what they're doing. Um, I think the point that I, <laughs> that I was, that I was trying to illustrate, uh, with the, uh, with talking about the tanning of America, something that was mentioned in there that was, that was, a little bit astounding, but I guess not that surprising. Talking about you know the old record label um, structure and you know what that did to cultivate art in a way. Um, there were a lot of positives that came out of that. You know, a lot of bands were groomed, and you know I don't think there would have been a Beatles if there wasn't you know this this uh, machine to put it out there. But at the same time, uh, one of the things that they addressed in this documentary was that Dr. Dre, Beats by Dre headphones, he's made more money selling those Beats by Dre headphones than he ever made throughout his entire recording history. Yeah. Going from, you know, um, I guess, uh, what was before NWA, something, uh, Wrecking Crew. Mm -hmm. uh, to N.W.A. to The Chronic to Snoop Dogg to yeah, Mary J. Blige to Eminem to yeah. like this guy's made so many hits you you would expect that he would have made so much money from those hits but he's made more money in just a few years of selling headphones than in his entire career as a recording artist so what does that say you know as to what value we put on the artists that are creating the product that you know uh, I'm sure that wouldn't be the same um, situation if we were talking about the CEO of Interscope Records. You know, I yeah. 
I would say that person probably made just about as much money as Dr. Dre is making off of headphones off of Dr. Dre. So, you know. <laughs> yeah. But in a lot of ways, that that um, establishment was one of the reasons why we had such a thriving music scene in the 90s. I mean, I think the 90s was a, an amazing time for music. Uh, it was, to me, sort of the, I guess, beginning of the end uh, of major label music in the sense that it was still putting out great stuff. You had a lot of really classic albums that came out during that time. But as it was when you started to see labels focusing more on what can I get now? You know, not what is this band going to be, you know, in five years when after I've, you know, cultivated them and they put out a record or two on my label and then we can really, you know, knock out that masterpiece release. And it started focusing more on, okay, what's going to, what's going to be a big hit tomorrow and mm. what's going to, get me the most money and where I don't have to invest that much up front. Yeah. And how much can we possibly charge people for CDs? Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but yeah, I think it's an interesting point. Like one of the, I mean, you know, with the death of record sales, when, when record sales were still a thing, when people would still pay money for records, you know, that enabled a whole kind of, that gave independent music a whole power. Right. That it just doesn't have right now. I mean, I remember talking to, um, you know, Fat Mike from NoFX. Yeah. And he'll tell you, you know, you ask him, like, he likes to talk about, you know, his partying and, like, doing drugs. And it's like, Fat Mike, you know, what do you tell your daughter or your kids about, like, doing drugs? And he's like, well, I tell them after they've, they're 30 and they've made their first million, they can do whatever <laughs> they want. And, like, this is a guy who started a record right. label, played on his punk band, put his friends' punk bands on it. And sold records. Yeah. You know, I think eventually he got some sort of major distribution, but he certainly didn't start out with it. Right. And that kind of independent record sales enabled that. It enabled these empires. It enabled SST, Greg Ginn, Black Flag. It enabled Discord and Ian Mackay and all of those bands and gave them like a kind of economic power that bands just don't have anymore because they, they only can make money really through touring or selling their image or music to corporations yeah i mean there isn't a product to sell anymore yeah you know it's exactly before you could go out and purchase a cd or a lp or even a cassette uh <laughs> and that was a tangible thing that you were paying for that you wouldn't be able to get if you hadn't gone and paid for it i mean yeah you could walk into the store and put it in your jacket and hope to get out without and then you have to figure out how to crack the cd case right. holder open which is no easy feat I mean what but what do you what do you think about about the way things stand right now it, should people pay for that intangible product now I think people should pay for something if you like something pay for it I think right. it's like inexcusable that you don't if you find an album that you like um not I mean you should go see that band you should go see them at a show if you can and I feel like you should buy a T-shirt or a record or buy something on, you know, buy something physical to support them. I mean, it's crazy to me how people complain about spending, 
ten dollars for uh or five dollars for a seven inch or ten dollars for a t-shirt or fifteen dollars for a t-shirt and i mean granted if bands are charging you forty dollars for a t-shirt at a concert that's a different story but like you know how much do you spend on coffee every week right like how much do you spend on beer every day like spend yeah. some money on things that you like it's it's pretty easy it's it's you know and <laughs> i think that that's just something people forget a lot and and kind of overlook and realize like you're giving your money yes you're trading your money for something but you're giving it to something that's good and so much of life in this capitalistic world is giving your money to things that you have to that aren't good right <laughs> well how do we cultivate that i mean that's that saying that is definitely very true you know but i think that's the hardest thing to possibly overcome is you have to basically reprogram people's yeah. value systems and the way they live their lives uh, and you had mentioned earlier that you know there's a few things that are going on right now with the city of San Francisco and nonprofits and all these people trying to find little band-aids to fix the problem and yeah. you know but ultimately those things are just band-aids they're not addressing what the actual problem is which is like an overarching cultural problem right and so how do you problem. like how do you how do you begin to change that you know because i think what you said is true the the nonprofit organizations in san francisco that are trying to to create opportunities for artists the city trying to create special permits for restaurants and whatnot all that stuff is you know it's good mm -hmm. it's you know certainly not a step in the wrong direction but just doing that is not going to solve the problem yeah because ultimately we have a problem with our cultural value system yeah and do you see a responsibility of of the media to start to reprogram people and start to bring up these things so that they can start to think about it and think about their impact and where their money is going and how you know the the result of what happens when you decide to just download something for free and not go to a show not buy any merch not support this band at all yeah definitely i mean and i think that there are a lot of efforts underway to kind of help remind people of that um you know, I mean, I've heard like some criticisms of record store day from various people, but I think that ultimately the idea of like making people go out or encouraging people to go out one day a year and spend a bunch of money in a record store is not a bad thing. Uh, I certainly, I mean, I, you know, there are certainly arguments against it that I think are valid and there are criticisms of it that are valid, but I think that's been a positive force. It's encouraging to see that um, bookstores are now doing the same thing. Books, bookstores. What California. are what are these bookstores? You speak bookstores. Of? Yeah, they're <laughs> these amazing places where you go, and they have all these words printed on paper and bound together, and they're like on <laughs> shelves, and you can stand there and read them. They even have SF Weekly in some of these bookstores. It's pretty cool. <laughs> um, but I, um, I, I mean, I think it's easy to sit here and say if you love something, support it. Yeah. And granted, like that's basically what I'm saying. Um, I think it would be easier for people to support things if, you know, our the sort of background economic circumstance of everything was not as difficult and as sort of painful and, 
you know, rigged as it is as it is now. And that's even something that people brought up in talking about my when I was researching my article. You know, people brought up to me things like um, Prop 13, the way that um, property taxes in California are set fixed on at a certain rate and basically never increase, which means that there are a lot of people living in houses or businesses, you know, working in offices that are paying tax rates based on the assessed value of like 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 years ago, um, which is far below what they're worth. And that means that the state doesn't have money to fund things like, say, public education and, you know, science research or like an arts program or music and arts programs in schools or all these kinds of things that would ultimately lead to us having a more vibrant and better better state, um, you know, and would ultimately lead to more young people having fewer student loans and therefore more disposable income that they might feel more inclined to buy things like music and books and, you know, concert tickets with. Um, so I think that's part of it. I think that uh, there's a lot to be said about housing policy in San Francisco and the difficulties are, there are myriad and I'm no expert on them, but um, you know, it seems incredible to me that we can't find a better way to force the companies that and the developers who are coming here and building properties that are going to make very large amount of money right, to actually yeah. build affordable housing. I mean, I have one success, a good friend of mine this week actually went through the process. This is like months and months and months. Finally actually did get a below market rate apartment in San Francisco. Wow. And it was like a huge, it's a huge deal, I think, because it is not easy to do. No. But there are so few of them being built and so many of these developers are building buildings. And then instead of actually building the affordable housing or just paying a fee into the city's um, coffers, but that doesn't actually build housing. That just puts money in a city account that then may or may not ever actually get used to build something. Um, so I think stuff like that matters. Um, and again, I think it's sort of a slow cultural awareness. And I do think that people will get the point eventually through the kind of cajoling of these efforts and through the witnessing things like the disappearance or the dwindling, shall we say, of musical culture in, in San Francisco, that they do need to support this and make a place for it or it will go away. Now, do you think that it's um, one of the things that you mentioned was uh, Prop 13? Yeah. And um, property tax law, and, uh, you know, I, the Ellis Act is another big one in mm -hmm. the Bay Area right now. But um, ultimately, I, I feel like a lot of. A lot of the solutions that are put forth to certain problems really are just attempts to like pass the buck on to somebody else, like <laughs> so that somebody else can foot the bill rather than actually addressing the problem. And as someone who, you know, owns a home and pays property tax <laughs> to the city of Oakland, which I then don't see uh, used in a particularly efficient or meaningful or positive way whatsoever I, i'm actually i don't even know where the money is going well actually i do it's probably going into the pockets of um who was it that the city made the deal with like one of the big wall street companies oh yeah um i can't remember which one right now but anyway the, the money is ultimately being pissed away and to and we see this a lot in owning clubs that 
a lot of times the city of San Francisco, their solution to a problem will be, okay, well, let's, let's tax, uh, sugary beverages, uh, like let's tax the sale of alcohol per pint and just pass that cost on to, to small business and cool, we're done. But in effect, that's, you know, putting more of a strain on the small business and ensuring that only the big, Twitter corporations with, you know, tons and tons of capital behind them are actually the ones that come in and can afford to, you know, continue to be in business and pay these things. So I think what we're addressing here is that it's that the thing that none of these things are separate, you know, these things that we think of as political issues or economic issues they have a direct effect on the things that matter to us. You know, even if we're not, even if you're not a homeowner and you know, and you don't have to pay property tax, or even if you're not a small business owner and you don't have to pay these fees to the city and fines and get a permit for every little thing, the fact that that is happening is, is affecting the ability for culture to thrive in that environment. And it is important for people to, to face the tough reality of looking at this incredibly broken system that is admittedly incredibly depressing to look at and think about and address in a realistic way. You can't help but want to like recoil from it because it's such a like, it's a, paradigm shattering like thing to look into the way we do things in this country the way our society is structured but none of this is going to ever ever be better if we don't take a look at those hard things and we don't confront the ugly truth i mean i'm sure for every person that agreed with your with your overall sentiment in um your articles about the San Francisco music scene and the influence of tech money on the entertainment industry in the city, there were, you know, probably a fair amount of people that disagreed with you and probably had some not so friendly things to say about oh, it. Of course. And there is an aversion for people wanting to actually acknowledge that this is real. Yeah, definitely. It's, you know, I think that's the biggest hurdle in my mind is getting people to look at these things and and have the strength and courage to confront them in a way. And I think the conclusion that I arrive at is that it's you got to play the game like the people that are ruling the game now are playing the game. You know, the people that the powers that be got to where they are by using media to dictate to people the way they wanted them to behave in a way that was going to have a benefit to them. You know, that's what advertising is. That's what commercials are. That's what uh, television channels are, you know, is people, corporations, companies, paying money to exert influence over culture. I mean, when you boil it down, that's what marketing and advertising is and um, it's not necessarily a pretty thing to look at but 
we do have to look at the fact that this is how our system is working and this is how it's been operating for a very long time and for a long time we haven't questioned it because it was working and now that it's not working quite as well for quite as many people I think it's time to really sit down and look at at how can we use the same tools that were used to exploit people in the past to drive home the uh, the message that you know people like you and I want to get across which is that you have to place value on certain things you have to contribute yeah. in order for things to survive you know you can't just unplug and expect that everything is going to continue to operate yeah absolutely and um you know i like to think of it in kind of terms of you know the environmental movement i mean the environmental movement 50 years ago basically didn't exist um it was spawned by a few books that people wrote and a few kind of crazy things that some wild hippies came <laughs> up with. And in the last, you know, 50, 60 years, 70 years, we've spawned this massive awareness and we've drastically changed the way that almost everything on this planet is done because we've become aware of things like, you know, greenhouse gases and polluted water and acid rain and clean air and which isn't to say that we fix them all but I like think that we've only maybe recently become aware of the importance of like healthy urban environments in the same way that we become aware of the importance of healthy natural environments and to me you know a vibrant culture artistic culture music arts um, literature those are part of a healthy urban environment and we need to find a way to support them and make sure that they're sustainable in the same way that we have you know clean air and clean water that's just part of what it means to be a person living on earth in the 21st century and I think that maybe that awareness is going to take time to to percolate but I, I think that it can get there um, and I'm hopeful at least that long term um, maybe these changes will affects places like I think they it certainly has happened in New York it's happening very seriously in San Francisco it's happening slowly and or not slowly but it's starting to happen now in Oakland maybe <laughs> down the road we'll get to the point where we can keep these from happening or even reverse them somehow um, through you know different means whether it's political changes economic changes cultural changes um, we certainly had all three in the environmental movement and you know maybe we will in the kind of whatever urbanist movement whatever you want to call it that's how I like to think I hope I like to think of it that way anyway <laughs> well I want to kind of you know leave this on a more positive note it is an all doom and gloom mm -hmm. uh, so what really what are some of the things that are are really excite you about the Bay Area music scene right now we're not just gonna limit it to San Francisco but what are what are some some reasons to rejoice about the, <laughs> the Bay Area music scene right now? What gets you excited? Um, I mean, there's just uh, the same thing, you know. Despite all this talk that we've had about musicians leaving and whatever, there are just still so many cool shows to see every week. I mean, there's just like no lack of major touring artists who are coming through and local artists who are coming up. Um, and just like fun stuff to go check out that you can kind of lose yourself in every night if you want to. I remember when I, I didn't go to South by Southwest this year and um, 
everyone was like, oh, you're not going to South by Southwest, huh? And I was like, no, I'm going to go see what the shows are like in the city <laughs> when South by Southwest isn't happening. Right. And everyone was like, oh, there won't be anything. It'll just be dead. And you know what? It wasn't dead. Yeah. There was a lot of stuff. And I was like at a sold out show on a Thursday night, you know, at the chapel going to something that I probably would never go to on a regular basis just for the hell of it to see what was happening and see what. And, you know, so I think when you're living in a place that's as big and as diverse as the Bay Area, you can kind of forget, especially when you get kind of deep into your own little scene, whatever it is that you like, you forget how many people there are and how many different little weird tribes and subcultures and you know music scenes there are and so i think i always just get excited about being able to go to like you know whatever just crazy different stuff no that's so. that's definitely true i mean there's still you know for all the the things that are happening that you could consider negative in in the bay area music scene there is no lack of of stuff to do yeah. you know it, there's always something going on pretty much any night of the week and for venues like Slim's and the Music Hall and a lot of the venues that, you know, we really admire around the city, there's a conscious effort to prop up local artists. And every show, even if it's a national touring act, if at all possible, we, we want to put a local band in that support slot. Yeah, and that's a great, huge, huge thing for the local music economy. And I think people sometimes don't realize that. And, you know, when people do realize that, they notice the venues that don't do that because not all venues do that. Yeah, that's definitely true. But, I mean, there is such a thriving local scene still. And there's tons of great bands out there. Whatever yeah. kind of music you're into, um, maybe with a few minor exceptions, but pretty much whatever you're into, you can find somebody that's doing doing that on a pretty regular basis whether it's like an established venue in the city or a more underground warehouse space in oakland or um, even a you know corporate sponsored event like uh like the converse uh, yeah. represent events that we had here at slims and i definitely respect that they they also made an effort to put local artists on pretty much all of those bills even though they brought in some heavy hitters oh yeah you know seeing saviors on the same bill with mastodon and hot lunch as well as i mean it's yeah. you know that's awesome they didn't have to do that right you know they could have left it at uh high on fire and mastodon and uh, people would have loved people it would have come yeah right so it's you know i definitely i appreciate uh businesses that are kind of taking this into into account and really trying to find ways to to establish the local scene and keep it going. And that really is the point of this podcast and the content that we do on the Slims Presents blog is to provide people with an opportunity to to realize that there are is all this great stuff happening and there are brilliant artists living probably, you know, a few blocks down from you and just tune into it and, you know, see what there is and if you like it, go back. Check them out again. <laughs> yeah. Buy their record. Buy, a buy You know, go and buy some food, buy some drinks, support the businesses, support <laughs> the artists. You know, stop giving your money to, you know, corporate coffee chains <laughs> and start giving it to the people that are actually giving meaning to your life. But anyway, I think we're going to wind this down with some trivia. Um, our trivia this week is San Francisco themed, going with um, 
our discussion here. We've been talking about a lot about local music and the culture of San Francisco and politics and all that kind of stuff. So that's going to be the focus of our trivia. Uh, the prize for this trivia is a pair of tickets to go see an awesome local band, the Soft White 60s, here at Slim's on Friday, April 25th. If you haven't seen them, they're a lot of fun live. Um, so you're definitely going to want to check out that show and support local music, even though you're not paying for the ticket. Come and buy their CD. Use that money to buy a T-shirt and have some drinks at the bar so we don't go out of business. All right, so the first person to answer all of these five trivia questions correctly and email me the answers at info at slimspresents.com will win a pair of tickets to the Soft White 60s at Slim's Friday, April 25th. Question number one. This famous San Francisco landmark was built on a plot of land that was exclusively sand dunes before its construction. What is that San Francisco landmark? Unlikely, given the way it looks today. Question number two. Due to the restrictions of the Chinese Exclusion Act of 1882, Many Chinese immigrants spent years on this island waiting for entry into San Francisco. What's the name of the island? Question number three. Damage from 1989's Loma Prieta quake forced the closure and demolition of this incomplete and controversial freeway project. I'll accept two possible answers for this one. Question number four. The Loma Prieta quake happened to occur during ABC's national television broadcast of the 1989 World Series. What TV comedy show did the network switch over to when the feed was lost from Candlestick Park? What sitcom did they cut to? You might have to Google that one if you weren't around. Okay, question number five. In this 1996 film, Robert De Niro plays a man obsessed with fictional San Francisco Giants player Bobby Rayburn. What's the name of that movie? All right, first person to send all five correct answers to me at info at slimspresents.com wins a pair of tickets to see the Soft White 60s at Slims Friday, April 25th. I want to thank Ian Port again for coming down and being our guest tonight. Thank you. Uh, definitely go and follow him on Twitter, iPort, or uh, follow his All Shook Down blog at SF All Shook Down. You can find him on the SF Weekly site. Uh, you can find him in print every Wednesday. Just walk to pretty much any street corner in San Francisco and pick up an SF Weekly and support the people that are trying to make something out of this fucking city. All right. Thank you for tuning in, people, once again to Between You, Me, and Jose, the Slims Presents podcast. Thanks again to Ian. We'll be back next week, every Wednesday, with a new guest. So follow us on Twitter at BYMJ Podcast, or uh, you can follow our YouTube account, um, Slims Presents, and we do lots of other cool content on there as well. And you can go to our website and see our blog and see everything we do. So thanks again. I'll see you guys next week with another guest. Bye.